Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, it is March the 9th, uh, 2022. Uh, as always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco, which is on the edge of Silicon Valley. I think it depends who I'm talking to, whether I acknowledge I'm part of Silicon Valley or not, but it's certainly close, perhaps too close to big tech. Uh, last year, I had the great honor of talking to Dave Eggers, uh, one of the great fictional chroniclers of Silicon Valley. Um, he was on the show to talk about uh, his newest book, The Every. Uh, it's a follow-up to The Circle, which was a huge hit uh, about a, a fictional uh, Silicon Valley company in which work and religion became mixed together to such an extent that uh, the company that Edgars is, Edgars is describing, The Circle, does indeed seem increasingly like a church. This issue of fiction and technology um, and Silicon Valley is one we've Return to in the show uh, last year, I also talked to a tech worker and novelist, Kathy Wang, who has a new book out, a new novel called Imposter Syndrome, which focuses on the God mode in tech and how powerful technologists like to think of themselves as God. Um, my old friend Paul Carr was on the show also last year, talking about his new novel in which... Uh, Tech workers tried to behave like God and murdered one another. They had no sense of the limits of their own power. Carr, Wang, Eggers, they're all fictional writers. Today I have a non-fictional writer on my show, Caroline Chen. She's the author of a new book called Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. There's nothing fictional about uh, Caroline Chen's world. She's um, sociologist at UC Berkeley and has spent several years looking at big tech companies in Silicon Valley to see how work and religion have essentially converged. I'm thrilled that uh, Carolyn was joining us from um, the East Bay, uh, Kensington, Berkeley, my old stomping ground. Carolyn, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Dave Edgar's circle. Is what he's describing, is it increasingly becoming nonfiction? Well, what I talk, what I talk about in my book is essentially, uh, my thesis is that work is replacing religion in Silicon Valley. And I'm, I'm using Silicon Valley as a case study, however, to make a larger argument about the status of work in the lives of high-skilled workers or professionals in the United States. Um, I see this happening in a couple of ways. First, in the last 40 years, 40, 50 years, we've noticed this general pattern where religious affiliation and religious participation has declined. Uh, and on the other hand, we see the work hours of professionals um, increasing precipitously. So that's sort of the backdrop of the last 40 years. Now, what's going on on the ground in the lives of uh, tech workers and other high-skilled workers? We see that workers are turning to, uh, high-skilled workers are turning to work for identity, meaning, belonging, purpose, 
fulfillment. And these are things that Americans used to turn to their uh, faith communities or their civic organizations uh, to fulfill these needs. On the part of companies, what we're seeing is that companies are increasingly taking up spiritual practices and incorporating spiritual practices into the work culture to make their workers more productive. So we see this in ways that they are uh, bringing in meditation and mindfulness. Um, that uh, professionals, high-skilled workers are increasingly calling their work a form of calling. Uh, in Silicon Valley, they bring in religious and spiritual leaders who come and give inspiring talks. Um, many of their senior leaders work with uh, executive coaches who um, human resources professionals uh, called, talk to me, uh, they, they called them spiritual advisors because they would often bring these spiritual practices of reflection, of meditation and discernment in order to align their souls with the work. It, uh, so Carolyn, this sounds very much like Dave Eggers' fictionalized mm -hmm. Silicon Valley company. Mm -hmm. I never quite understood whether he saw all this in a fictional sense, at least, as fraudulent, or whether people actually believed mm -hmm. in work as religion. Are you suggesting, as a sociologist of religion, that this is all for real? No one's making this up. When people talk about mindfulness and life coaches, they're actually substituting traditional church for work. Yes, absolutely. Yes, exactly. That is what I'm arguing. So on one part is this argument of this institutional replacement, right? Where is it that Americans used to find identity, belonging, community, meaning, and purpose? It was often through their faith, their faith communities. Well, now increasingly high school workers are finding it through the workplace. And companies themselves are sort of you know, they um, are incorporating elements of religious organizations such, I mean, every Fortune 500 company now has a mission, an origin myth, ethics, practices, even a charismatic leader. These are the fundamental basic elements of religious organizations. So no, I don't think that this is something that is, uh, that, you know, Dave, Dave Eggers just sort of made up. Um, and again, I want to say that this is not just a Silicon Valley phenomenon. Um, if you talk to high school professionals, uh, high school workers or professionals around the United States, they talk about their work as a source of identity. They talk about their work as a source of purpose and meaning. Um, you know, just with the recent uh, great reconsideration or great resignation, whatever you want to call it. I mean, people are, Americans are talking about changing their jobs to find more meaningful work. Well, why are we locating that meaning in, in, in the institution of work? Karen, you don't need me to lecture you about the great Max Weber and his even greater <laughs> book, The Protestant Ethic and the mm -hmm. Spirit of Capitalism, in which he located the origins of capitalism in predestination and the spiritual emptiness or the spiritual uh, oddities of Protestantism. So this isn't exactly new, is it, to connect religion and work, but you're connecting religion, work, and the corporation. Is that fair? Yes, I think that what, you know, oftentimes religion has been used in workplaces and particularly in, say, the industrial era uh, and in other times in history, work 
religion has been used to legitimate particularly uh, unequal work arrangements, right, or for exploitation. Um, and this is sort of Marx's argument that religion is an opiate of the masses and it simply keeps the proletariat uh, um, accepting um, the conditions, the work. Opium, uh, Marx famously called religion the opium of the worker. Right, right. And so I think that religion and being used by work is not a new thing, but we're seeing it in a slightly in a different kind of configuration here, where there is a much more emphasis on the sort of voluntary experience and the authentic, um, the authentic spiritual experience, which is really, I would say, you know, feeding into the sort of spiritual energy of the 21st century of 21 of the 21st century west so really um when when uh, when you have executive coaches who are working with um with senior leaders it's about they they often use this language of how to connect to your authentic self and finding your purpose through your um finding uh, caroline you're you're being very moderate here, but does it turn your stomach, this cult of the authentic? I, when I think of the word authenticity and personal mm -hmm. coaches, I always think of Arianna Huffington. Yeah. <laughs> has a curious ability to particularly turn my stomach for her. Yeah, okay. So you see, I'm really distasteful about this, isn't it? You, you, you don't have to be an objective academic on my show. This is just <laughs> annoying and pathetic, isn't it? Okay, yeah, so Andrew, I have to, so as, as a sociologist and studying these people, it's always been my, um, you know, my aim and goal to really to empathize and to be able to see things from their perspective and to even experience things from their perspective. So, so I would often have be sort of of these two warring conflicting minds, because on the one hand, yes, my stomach would be turning as I would be hearing these things. But then on the other hand, I would be, you know, I had to see them things from their perspective, that in their worldview, and say, in the absence of other sources of meaning, well, this was the most accessible and available uh, source of meaning for them. And on top of that, I mean, I think they the work institutions were at least in Silicon Valley, are more devoted to their personal fulfillment than any other institution. So for them to worship work and find their authentic selves at work is really quite natural, you know, in that kind of setting. But yeah, I'll tell you something, um, Andrew, which is that like I would participate in these personal development and professional development workshops. And in one of them, you know, we had to go around and we had to talk about uh, what our mission was. And I was sort of like, oh no, what am I going to say? Because I haven't ever thought about my mission before. And I have to go around the circle and say what my mission is too. And I suddenly, you know, came up with a mission sort of that would fit into what everyone else was saying. And it was as a teacher to, you know, everyone knew that I was a sociologist, I wasn't a tech worker, but that I had to also suddenly come up with one. And I said, it's it's to enlighten minds, right? That's kind of sounds like Silicon Valley talk, right? Um, and it was interesting because in that space, I was really attentive to my feelings and what it was like saying this and being around a group of people who were cheering for me, that I was enlightening young minds through my work. And you know what? It was a strangely exhilarating experience. I, I just have to admit that. 
Although I, I still get the sense, uh, Caroline, that you're a bit ambivalent. You know it's absurd as well. What, what, I mean, <laughs> yes, I mean, yes. I mean, yeah, I, yes. Yeah, I want to go back to, to Weber and his Protestant ethic, mm -hmm. um, in which he saw the spirit of capitalism coming out of a particular kind of Protestantism. Are you suggesting that there is now, if you like, a sort of a, a, a spiritual vacuum at the heart of American life in a a post-religious world, particularly a post-religious coastal elites world. Mm -hmm. So the elites now coming out of Harvard and Stanford and Yale and ending up at Google and Facebook and the big banks, they're all turning to religion. Uh, so they're all turning to work as religion, or is it more mm -hmm. complicated than that? I, I think that what you're talking about is spiritual vacuum is one way of putting it. But I want to, again, I, I want to uh, ground this in institutions that we find meaning, we find our spirituality through community, through belonging and through institutions. So that what we've seen in the last 50 years is essentially this decline and impoverishment of institutions and spaces in civil society to find fulfillment, to find meaning and to find purpose. The end of public space, essentially. Sorry? The end of public space. Yes, exactly. It's the end of public space. And as we see this decline in public space, we've seen the expansion, the, agri uh, the expansion of work, essentially taking over, colonizing and monopolizing more of the functions of these other institutions. And so what you see happening is actually that work is expanding by taking over, taking and demanding more of people's time and their energy and devotion, Yet, on the other hand, it's also expanding by fulfilling more of their needs. So that work, I mean, we used to talk about work, and we still do talk about work as being extractive, right? That work is something, it's soul crushing, it's soul sucking, you know, you're selling your soul. And I talk about how in Silicon Valley, it's the opposite. People are finding their souls there because what you well, see is- I'm not sure if there are many souls in Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's been this shift right that's what i'm arguing is that the shift now that that the the work workplace has changed changed and the meaning of work has changed because of this absence of the public because of the absence of civil society and work has now you know monopolized those functions um and it's it's and it's fulfilling people in these ways this is great stuff. I think it's a really important message and an important work you're doing, uh, Carolyn. Um, work, pray, code. When work becomes religion in Silicon Valley, you teach, uh, I know, at UC Berkeley. Uh, I want to take a short break now, Carolyn. And then afterwards, I want to talk more about the corporation, what kinds of corporations are shaping what kinds of religion. I also want to talk about politics and democracy and perhaps... Mm -hmm. Uh, connect the crisis of democracy in America with the, the this new religiosity in the corporate workspace. Mm -hmm. So hold on, everyone. We'll be back with these brilliant sociologist Carolyn Chen in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing 
to the audio only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or Castbox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page. Um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keynote. We're back with Carolyn Chen, the author of Work, Pray, Code, really interesting new book. It's out today about how work and the corporate, um, the corporate institution has become religion in Silicon Valley. Uh, Carolyn, before the break, we were talking about uh, public space and the crisis of public space in America, as I so often do in this show. I go back to Democracy in America, the Tocqueville's great work on 19th century America in which he came and he seemed to connect religion and democracy and public space. How has the America that de Tocqueville observed changed and how's that connected with your thesis in, in your new book? Yeah, well, the, the, the America that Tocqueville talks about um, that democracy, um, uh, civic society, civil society and civic space is really critical to creating this sort of fine balance, right, of, of democracy in the United States. And that in, he argues that in, that in civil society, you have the, uh, you have the presence of these voluntary institutions, such as faith communities, religious institutions, and you know, Rotary Society, et cetera, that are really important in bolstering uh, uh, participation and democracy um, and serving as a check on the powers of the state, essentially. I think that what we are seeing now in America today is really the shrinking of civil society and the shrinking of these public spaces. Um, you know, uh, Tocqueville doesn't talk that much about work, but essentially, you know, I, I'm going to link this to Robert Putnam's famous book, Bowling Alone. Uh, yeah, and Putnam's uh, been on the show. Okay, all right. Well, you know, he he um, he talks about this decline in civic participation and arguing that essentially people are bowling alone now. Um, they're not joining bowling leagues like, like they used to 60 or 50 years ago. What I'm finding in Silicon Valley is actually there is still that's not true. They aren't bowling. They're not bowling alone. They're bowling in bowling clubs that are provided through their workplace. 
through, uh, you know, through hiking clubs, through bowling clubs, through um, gardening clubs, and that this is all channeled through the workplace rather than in a space that is quite exclusive, um, right? That in order to work in a place like Google or Facebook first, you know, you have to have the right credentials. <laughs> um, you have to have the right pedigree. You have to be frankly, the right gender uh, and the right race. And so this is not a space that's open to everyone. Um, and so we're seeing that the locus of our sociality is being, uh, has been shifting to the workplace. In uh, Carolyn, in Egger's um, The Circle uh, and in um, the, the Every, and he's not alone here, um, he identifies this salvationist quality to the religiosity in big tech companies. Is this another piece of the puzzle that you're uncovering in Work, Pray, Code? That these big companies and Google and Facebook are classic examples. There's something in them that requires their workers and their mission to be saving the world rather than simply mm -hmm. making a profit for their shareholders. Mm -hmm. Are you suggesting this isn't just rank corporate dishonesty? It actually is part of this sort of re-spiritualization or spiritualization mm -hmm. of, of corporate America. Yes, I, I think that is, I think that's absolutely true. I think that we really, you know, and just to give some historical context that we really see this shift in this emphasis in corporate culture happening in the 1980s, where we have global restructuring and, you know, global capitalism. And so this increased competition and American companies are thinking like, how can we, how can we can how can we compete? And so, so we see during this time a whole bunch of like management books. The most um, popular one is In Search of Excellence, where they are telling management and you know business leaders, you need to bring in inspirational words um, and don't talk about just the bottom line and efficiency. You need to talk about passion. You need to bring in mission. Um, and these are the, and, and essentially, borrowing from a lot of the language and practices from the private sphere, from religions and families where really love and devotion have no bounds. And so, yes, I think that, you know, in, in, in my uh, interviews, one uh, senior executive told me that the workplace is the spirit, is the hotbed of spirituality in Silicon Valley. And from my, you know, from my observations, I think that is true because spirituality is very much seen as a competitive advantage. I think that in the knowledge economy, you need to remember that a company's most valuable asset is essentially their human capital. You know, it, in an industrial economy, it might be their machines, it might be natural resources, right? But in a knowledge economy, it is, it is the human worker. And so the question in a capitalist world is how do you grow the value of your human capital? Well, you could do this through a couple ways. One is by growing the skills, you know, skilling up your, your, uh, your workforce, which is already what we see happening. Um, and the other is to work on the spirit, you know, how in working on um, that sort of discretionary effort how do we then capitalize on the spirit so that we can channel its total energy into work? 
Caroline, this doesn't just, you're very convincing. This, in my view at least, doesn't just begin in corporations. It begins perhaps in the womb or certainly in childhood in the new mm. rearing practicing practices mm -hmm. of the upper middle class that you and I are so familiar with. Uh, you teach them. And Stanford seems to play an important role here. We had some Stanford professors, Rob Wright, um, and some others uh, on um, uh, Rob Reich, uh, they co-wrote a book called System Era, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote it with uh, Mehran Sahami, who teaches a very influential introductory ethics course at Stanford, um, and Jeremy Weinstein. Stanford, of course, being the junior school of corporate Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. This new education at places like Stanford and probably like Berkeley are preparing these kids for this new world, isn't it? Um, isn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely. And this is what, you know, um, someone like Wendy, political science, Wendy Brown would talk about sort of. She's a UC political philosopher. Yes, exactly. But about the, the influence of neoliberalism in education, um, where essentially we think of education as essentially as a way to optimize one's marketable skills and i think that that it, this is yes absolutely this is uh, you know so ubiquitous right it's so much a part of the education system the way that we think in families uh that we think in education um that that the purpose of learning is essentially to 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 learn skills, to become more marketable in this competitive. It's also to be more spiritual and, 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 and good. I've always been, I'm very suspicious of everything that happens at Stanford, but um, <laughs> I hope you are as a UC person, but- um, I feel like I can't say that on live air. You, 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 you don't have, you can say it privately. I know you think it. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, Places like Stanford and Berkeley and Harvard and Yale, they're all teaching these kids how to be good, how to be virtuous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I've always thought in America in particular, there's this huge appetite, this greed for virtue, mm -hmm. which is then having been educated in being good at Stanford or Harvard, then they go into Google and Facebook and then they try and do more good. Of course, they fuck, usually fuck the world up, but that's another <laughs> issue, right? Yes, I think that there is, um, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with you that there is, it's it's interesting though. I, I don't think that it stops at, I I, I mean, here I'll, I'll push back on this. I don't necessarily think it's just about, because if it's a virtue, it's a good in itself, right? That That in itself is a wholesome state, it's virtuous. But rather what I think is that good is being used in a very utilitarian and instrumental way, that good is being used as a way to, you know, uh, to increase profit or to be more productive. I, I, I actually would disagree that people today are, are oh, that good is actually being treated as a virtue. Um, there is, I think, this hunger to be to seem good, to be good, but I don't think that, that I think that there is still a very much of an instrumental approach to being good. But there is a culture clash now within Silicon Valley, a generational one between mm. the elders who, who don't see the hypocrisy of this and younger tech workers at places like Google and Facebook who are increasingly beginning to realize 
that there's mm-hmm. something really rotten here and that these companies that are supposed to be doing good, particularly mm-hmm. Facebook, have actually uh, undermined our democracy and created all this alienation and loneliness and anger. So do you see a shift uh, in generationally in your research between older and younger tech workers? Well, at the time I was doing my research, I saw a generational shift in that, like the older tech workers were the ones who were less invested in sort of the narrative of Silicon Valley doing good. And again, I want to just tie this back to the fact that they had sources of identity and community belonging somewhere else, and it wasn't the workplace. So they were less sort of, you know, they they were, they, they bought into this narrative less because they had alternative traditions and ways of understanding the world. Um, and so I saw it actually more in the younger generation of workers. It's sad. These, are you suggesting these people are sort of spiritually adrift? They have nothing. So they have to essentially grab onto these companies. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> in a way, yes. I am saying that. But from their experience, uh, this is such an exhilarating and fulfilling experience that it that while to you it may feel spiritually adrift and to be sad, to them it is not at all. What about COVID, uh, mm-hmm. Carolyn? Um, my old friend Julia Hobsbawm has a new book out, The Nowhere Office, Reinventing Work and the Workplace of the Future. It seems as if even Silicon, or Silicon Valley in particular mm-hmm. is changing, that the office mm-hmm. is becoming the home. Do you see, I mean... Mm-hmm. Might there have been work, pray, code, home? I mean, this, <laughs> yeah. this confluence of public and private life of the office and the home now is complete, isn't it? Especially in a post-COVID world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I did all my research before COVID and then it was so inconvenient that COVID happened. It's like, oh, this messes up everything. But I think that really what you see is the complete obliteration of boundaries between work and home now with COVID. Um, and, um, and so that, you know, I think that wherever work goes, it takes over, essentially, this is what I'm finding. And so that it is taking over homes and family life as well, if not, it had already been doing that. I think that, um, but, you know, Google is going back to work on April 4th. Um, they're asking their employees to come back in three days a week. So I'm, um, and it, it seems like many places are still allowing the option of having hybrid, you know, not working, not going back to work five days a week. So I think that this still remains to be seen what's going to be happening. But I think that the real question for me is, what's happening in the public, you know, what's happening in civil society, that essentially, if this is not being built up, if people aren't investing in institutions there, by default, we're still going to be, we're still going to be putting all all of our eggs in the work basket. That's where we're going to be finding meaning and identity in places like, you know, the Bay Area, uh, in places like Silicon Valley, in, in places like Seattle or New York, you know, these knowledge industry hubs. Carolyn, finally, what is to be done here? I mean, you've been a little careful about uh, being too prescriptive, but yeah. clearly uh, you, this, this conclusion you come to in work, pray, code, that work has become a religion in Silicon Valley is an entirely healthy outcome. What would you like to happen? I mean, the conventional 
argument in tech and whether it's, you know, with Scott Galloway's been on the show, um, so many others, uh, uh, Frank and Fur, break up the big tech companies. But for you, that doesn't really make any difference. What needs to be yeah. done here to restore a, a, a spiritual and political equilibrium? Do we need to rethink public space? Is that the biggest challenge? Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, in my conclusion, I, um, I draw from a quote from the late writer, David Foster Wallace, and he says, there's no such thing as atheism. We all worship something. The only thing is, the only difference is that we get to choose. And so I think he offers us here uh, some wisdom about how to stop worshiping work, or what I call, you know, how do we break this theocracy of work? Essentially, the only way we can do this is by worshiping something else. The question is what? And this is where, uh, you know, I, the solution for me is really in a reinvestment of building in public space and in civil society so that we build new communities and institutions that can offer us sources of fulfillment, identity, and belonging, and that sort of can pull our devotion, you know, that can attract our devotion and that we are willing to sacrifice for and submit to like we do for work. Uh, in my research, I found that who are the people who were able to resist this vortex of work? Well, these were people, as I mentioned earlier, who were pulled by other commitments, you know, who were pulled, who were devoted to other things. So I think that this is the answer. How do we create a robust civil society, a robust public that can pull us away from work. The solution isn't, I think, asking workplaces to create better work-life balance. I, that is simply not in their interest and I don't trust them to really do that. So I think the solution comes from us in rebuilding a public. Yeah, and in a funny kind of way, Carolyn, maybe this is one area where the coastal liberal elite can learn from um, the, 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 the flyover territories in America who have kept their religion in their churches, which is probably ultimately a healthy arrangement than transforming the workplace into a church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, they have a different story when it comes to work is, is essentially work has become less meaningful. It's the reverse. Yes, it's been exactly the reverse. So we sort of need something that's in the middle there. We don't, we don't, we don't want to have, you know, we, we, work will always be meaningful and that is not a bad thing it's yeah. just if, if you have a job that is of course yes and if you if you have a job the problem is how do we create you know secure stable and jobs with dignity but that don't have to monopolize all of us and our spirituality well, this is great stuff from carolyn chan uh, the book is just out today work pray code when work becomes religion in silicon valley it's not just silicon valley it's wall street as well i think she's absolutely right she has a finger, her finger on something really important and relevant and problematic in America today. Congratulations, Carolyn, on the book. What else should people be reading in um, in March 2022? In addition oh, to your new book, yeah, great question. This is a book that I'm reading now. It's a it's a novel. Um, it's called The Stolen Bicycle, and it's by a Taiwanese author named Wu Mingyi. And uh, well, because I'm Taiwanese American, it's just a fabulous book for me because it brings it, it. There's a lot of fun sort of language, and and it brings me just 
you know, to the world of my grandparents and, uh, and there's a lot of history in there and about the Japanese occupation. So that's a fantastic book. It was long listed for the, bo uh, the Booker Award. Well, that's certainly a book I, I would like to read and perhaps to have, have the author on the show. It might be interesting, Carolyn, I'm not sure if you're onto a new project, but given your background and interest in East Asia, perhaps a, a comparative study of work, pray, code in China and the United States, Silicon Valley <laughs> versus China, would be fascinating, given yes. that surveillance capitalism seems, or surveillance, mm -hmm. what you call it, authoritarianism, seems to be on the rise in both countries. Finally, mm -hmm. Carolyn Chen, author of Work, Pray, Code. Carolyn, uh, who runs the world? Who's in charge these days? Yeah, great question. I think it's still this microscopic, invisible virus called COVID-19. 